Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to thepetecalendarshow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. I'll get to some of the emails uh, that came in regarding the topic last hour on the NC innovation idea. But uh, the McClatchy paper in town here in Charlotte, but also their sister publication, which is nearly identical to the one in Charlotte, the Raleigh News and Observer, um, they did a uh, they did a story that ran in both piece or uh, uh, both papers called "There's No Going Back." Business districts in Charlotte and Raleigh seek new ways to recover from the pandemic, and the, uh, that nobody's in the downtown area. There was an analysis, and I talked about this a couple of days ago. I think last week or maybe two weeks ago, uh, this uh, study came out from. Uh, the School of Cities at the University of Toronto, and they did an analysis based on um, the cell phone footage, or not footage, um, information in the downtown areas, and they looked at you know phone use, population numbers, and stuff, and they were able to determine uh, you know whether or not cities had sort of bounced back, and then they ranked them: sixty-three U.S. and Canadian cities were ranked by their rate of downtown recovery. And in that latest ranking, uh, comparing from March through May of this year to the same period in 2019 before the pandemic, Charlotte came in at 31st place. Raleigh is at 57th. There's only 63 cities, right? So we're Charlotte's middle of the pack. And uh, Raleigh is like almost the worst. The city of Raleigh has launched a study of ways to restore activity to the downtown core. Hmm. Have you thought about getting a professional football team? That worked pretty well for Charlotte at one point, I think. Oh, maybe locate an arena and uh, and a whole bunch of like museums and stuff. And then that'll get all of the uh, the people downtown. and, And yeah. And then, of course, well, yeah, then you may have like the... You may have the riots and the f- the fracases going on more often, but just you know, don't hire any police and that'll be fine. Okay, so the uh, the project is supported by a quarter million dollars in federal COVID relief funds that Raleigh is using in order to figure out how to make downtown attractive to people again. Um, they have a quote later on in the piece from Ron Blatman or Blatman. Black man. He has visited cities across the U.S. as the executive director of a documentary series called Saving the City, Remaking the American Metropolis. He is familiar with both Raleigh and Charlotte, and as a San Francisco resident, he is keenly aware of cities' post-COVID challenges. Yes. Yes, it's because of COVID. (laughs) Okay. Uh, He says, Charlotte's got a strong corporate base. It's got growing cultural appeal, but it still needs more retail in Uptown, in the Central District. 
Raleigh and Charlotte could boost activity by bringing local university programs into center city buildings. I guess, yeah, that that's one way to do it. Although, like, Johnson and Wales is already there. And isn't Wake Forest, don't they have a campus up there, too? And But, yeah, I mean, that's one way to do it. You got all these buildings, you yeah, know, sure. Blattman's message for both cities is that a major overhaul and new public subsidies are not needed. I want to say this again for all of the the Democrat uh, officials that run the city and the county. <laughs> I'm going to say this again. His message is a major overhaul and new public subsidies are not needed. He thinks market forces will bring back many office workers, and the number of people living downtown will increase. Cities, he said, here we go, need to focus on their essential functions. Yes, say it loudly for the people in the back. Focus on your essential functions. Pick up the trash. Right? Make sure people, visitors and residents alike, that they feel safe. And then he also says provide public transportation. But I would I, I, I'm, I don't even agree with that. I mean, you got the, the scooters. In fact, well, you know what? Here we go. For the price that we pay for running all the buses, how about Uber vouchers? And then let every you just get some right. You just get the GovCo Uber uh, Uber voucher, and then you could get in any Lyft or Uber or rideshare program. Yeah, just do it that way. Um. If you're really blocking and tackling, Blackman says, it's doing what cities are supposed to do, which is keep your streets clean, keep your people safe, keep activity high, and make sure people can get in and out easily and they feel like it's someplace where people want to be. The pandemic turned downtowns into ghost towns overnight. This is, again, the McClatchy piece. This is written by Ethan Hyman. He says, uh, the pandemic turned downtowns into ghost towns overnight, but governments delivering strong services and planners pursuing bold ideas can make these iconic districts the centers of city life again. In other words, the complete opposite message that Blattman just told you. How do you do an interview with this fellow Ron Blattman, and he tells you, do the things you're supposed to be doing, safety, cleanliness, right? And and his last sentence is governments delivering strong services and planners pursuing bold ideas. That's not what he said. I mean, I guess delivering strong services is what he said, but the the pursuing of bold ideas, that's not what he said. He specifically says you don't need to do things that are outside of the wheelhouse of what a local government is supposed to be doing. Focus on how about just one? How about we pick just one thing right now, just short term? How about one? I might suggest public safety. Can we focus on the public safety? Is that okay? Can we do that? I got a I got an email. Well, this is I guess it is public safety related. Somebody sent me a picture. Apparently there's some guy in uptown Charlotte that rides around on some sort of what appears to be an electric vehicle, but he's got like a wheelchair strapped to the back of it like dragging behind it like well the wheels are rolling behind like it's turned backwards and then it's strapped to the back of his little it may be like one of those uh it may be an electric um 
a wheelchair or something that the guy's driving. But he has he's built out he's he's got like shopping carts attached to it on one side. He's got like an umbrella. And so he has all of, and he's got like boxes and and uh like the rubber made uh tubs with the lids on. He's got all of this stuff just like attached to this electric vehicle. He's just riding down the street with it. Yeah, he's like it's that's his portable house. It's everything he's got. And as he's and so th- apparently this is a guy uptown. <laughs> like I don't know. I I mean I, I applaud the uh the ingenuity. But Ron Blattman, being from San Francisco, he sees it every day. He's acutely aware of what's going on in San Francisco. It is the poster child of failed local governing and policy. And it is, this is the warning. Everybody should be looking at San Francisco. You know, like they would go on these field trips, like the Chamber of Commerce would uh, get all of the local city and county elected leaders, and they all pile onto a, you know, a plane, and they fly out to some town, and they're like, oh, or some city of a comparable size, and we get ideas about what we could be doing better. And Go to San Francisco and learn what they did, and then don't do any of those things, right? Do that as a field trip. What do you say? I say it's a great idea. Of course, it's my idea, so I would say that. That's Yeah, that's fair. Anchor Steam. You ever had that beer? Did you know that like it's like one of the oldest breweries? It may be the oldest brewery. I think Yingling is actually the oldest. It's the oldest one in San Francisco. It's been around uh, since 1896, and they're done. Located in San Francisco, they're done. They, and the irony is that they were like the first craft beer. It's a it's a fascinating story, including uh, an heir to the Maytag fortune. Yeah. The last time San Francisco's Anchor Brewing Company faced bankruptcy, a wealthy heir stepped in to save it and may have changed the course of the entire American beer industry in the process. There may not be a similar reprieve this time. Although, i am got my fingers crossed. Anchor Brewing, originally founded in 1896, announced that it's shutting down for good. This is from Eric Boehm, or Boehm, 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 B-O-E-H-M, at Reason.com. The impacts of this is their uh, this is their official statement that the impacts of the pandemic, inflation, especially in San Francisco, and a highly competitive market left the company with no option but to make this sad decision to cease operations, said Sam Singer, a spokesman for the company. The highly competitive craft beer market that might have played a role. In Anchor's final demise, ironically, the craft beer market might not exist without Anchor Brewing. Because of the because of what happened back in 1965. It survived, think about this, it survived the 1906 earthquake. It survived that other one in like the 80s or 90s, right? Um, prohibition, right? Some of the darkest days of American beer history. It survived a bankruptcy, uh, almost, I guess, uh, in 1965. Um, But a guy by the name of Fritz Maytag stepped in. 
and yes, that Maytag of the yeah of the appliance fame. Fritz Maytag is the great grandson of the founder of the Maytag Corporation, who bought a majority share in Anchor Brewing because he liked the beer, and then he set about to making it better. In an era when macro breweries making yellow, watery lagers dominated America's beer market, Anchor's flagship beer, Anchor Steam, with its distinctive copper color and foggy flavors, it certainly stood out. To gain acclaim for making a superior product that customers enjoy is the goal of any businessman. To inspire others to do the same? That's what cements Anchor's and Maytag's place in the pantheon of American beer making. Because by the mid-70s, they had gotten this reputation, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, they had gotten a reputation uh, for, you know, good beer, their process, and business was growing for them on the West Coast. It became a hub for this whole new wave of brewers that started experimenting with all different new styles of beer. And among those was a fellow named Ken Grossman who went on to found Sierra Nevada Brewing Company in 1980, which then launched right, America's craft beer revolution. According to the Beer Association, an industry group, obviously, um, there were only 163 breweries in the country when Maytag saved Anchor from bankruptcy in 1965. In, uh, what, 15 years later? there were fewer than 100. Today, there were over 9,000. As the New York Times noted in its story, mid-level breweries like Anchor, which grew large enough to have a decent national footprint but remained smaller than the likes of Budweiser and Coors, although Bud seems to be on a path to get smaller than Anchor, but whatever. Um, they're particularly vulnerable now because they face competitive pressure from the larger breweries but are also losing market share on the local side with the smaller craft breweries and they the more that those proliferate and attract new customers the harder it is for a mid-sized brewery like anchor steam or anchor brewing so kind of ironic oh and before i forget have you got your ticket to the heritage life skills event yet I'll be there. The annual event is put on by Carolina Readiness Supply, and you can learn all sorts of ways to be better prepared and self-sufficient in the event of any emergency. Things like homesteading, canning, water storage, radio communications, herbal remedies, home defense, fermenting vegetables. I'll be there Saturday evening. Check out the schedule at carolinareadiness.com. This is what Carolina Readiness Supply does. For beginners all the way to the most experienced preppers, Carolina Readiness can help you. Get your tickets now at carolinareadiness.com. Veteran-owned Carolina Readiness Supply. Will you be ready when the lights go out? So this is sad news, but hopefully somebody steps in, maybe, and uh, saves Anchor Brewing. Just because of its, you know, its its place in American brewing history and, and whatnot. It's such an old um, operation. 127 years they were in San Francisco. Um, according to Good Morning America, some residents noticed that the company's navy blue flag, which flies on top of its headquarters on Mariposa Street in uh, San Francisco, somebody had turned it upside down. As, as a sign of distress, right? Um, the company's statement 
cited the strict shutdowns in San Francisco amid the pandemic, which halted 70% of Anchor's sales in restaurants and bars. They also cited inflation and a highly competitive market as the catalysts that left it with, quote, no option but to make this sad decision to cease operations. Employees were given 60 days notice and promised severance packages, according to the company. But um, apparently they were not even told before it went out to the media. There's a uh, Portland-based beer writer named Jeff Allworth. Apparently he's pretty popular. He's, He's kind of a big deal in the beer world. He said, Anchor was never just a brewery. The story of how Fritz Maytag saved a brewery became the founding myth for American craft beer. Anchor was at once the past and the future. Proof that small breweries could exist outside an ecosystem of commodity loggers. Right? Because got to remember, like back then, yeah, everything was all the mass-produced stuff. And look, that there is... Um, I've told this story before, but Oscar Wong, a uh, brewer out in Western North Carolina, one of like the original craft brewer gurus, right? Sort of godfather in the craft industry. Um, and, you know, he, he talked about in an interview about how, um, you know, companies like Budweiser, from a technical standpoint, that it is impressive that they can brew as they do at the scale that they do and then transport it all over the place and have it taste the same wherever you go right that's that is an amazing feat um and so they deserve credit for that they just you know they're just mass producers and so um it's just different and so the, you know part of the craft brew idea the, the the what makes it cool is the culture right it's the whole environment about it and the whole image and and ideas so There have been many odes and explanations for Anchor Brewing's downfall. Soleil Ho, writing at the San Francisco Chronicle, says some of the more indignant voices cry doom loop because it's San Francisco, right? And they're very sensitive about the doom loop that they are in. Um, Others directed their ire at the brewery's four-year-old union. Yeah, they unionized four years ago. Just a, a couple of weeks back, June 20th, they the unionized workers ratified their latest contract. Three weeks later, they're announced that they're going out of business. You know who owns Anchor now? Sapporo. It's a multinational beer corporation. Sapporo acquired Anchor in 2017. And when they made this announcement... They said that um, uh, when the closure is finalized and the taps at the tasting room finally run dry, 61 blue-collar workers who believed in the company enough to organize for better conditions will be out of a job. (laughs) The San Francisco reporter right there for you, right? They cared so much about the company that they they organized into a union, and now their company is going out of business. Now, I don't know if the contract is what did them in or the unionization had this you know terribly negative impact on the bottom line because the other side of this coin is poor management by the parent company right to some extent well here this is um in an email from jeff mokler of laughing monk brewing um 
said escalating costs of freight and the fundamental materials like aluminum and grain have put incredible strain on all breweries. Co-founder of Harmonic Brewery, John Verna, says that retail sales took a huge hit after the pandemic, but rent and labor and cost of goods, they're all up. Local, state, federal taxes and fees, they all stayed the same, right? The situation is untenable, he said. The thing that distinguished Anchor from Harmonic and Laughing Monk, the thing that doomed it was corporate management that clearly did not understand what Anchor meant, she writes. Small-time local bars that formed the backbone of that brewing business, they, they fell out of touch when the corporate owner came in. Sapporo switched to a bigger distributor that could not or would not work with the local bars. The demand among bar owners and managers was there, according to the union representative. There just wasn't a way to get the beer to the people that wanted the beer, so he says. Anchor Steam was always this sort of working-class beer for people in San Francisco. That was the mentality that kept it afloat for so long, even after Maytag bought it. But that did not apparently make its way to the new owners at Sapporo, who have been criticized by certain investors um, for their focus on trying to get into like real estate and out of the beer business. It's just a, you know, it's just a really sad demise here. Anchor was doomed, she says, because its true value was invisible to owners who simply didn't care to recognize it. Then maybe, look, maybe we get another Fritz to step in and buy it back. I don't know. I don't even drink the beer. I just, it's, you know, I just like the story. You know, it's a good story. America needs some good stories. San Francisco needs a good story, right? It's only 60 jobs. But uh, San Francisco needs a good story. Because we all know about, you know, the doom loop, circling the drain. Uh, Athena Thorne over at PJ Media, she had a a big piece on this, uh, imploding cities. And while we, you know, as conservatives, you you sit back and like, oh, my gosh, look at these cities run by, you know, Democrats and they're circling the drain. It's all going uh, to pot, like sometimes quite literally. But what the like like, what the impact on us is going to be the people who do not live inside of the city limits, but near like even in the rural areas, all of when the cities start failing, it's going to impact all of us. And she breaks it down. She's first quick refresher on the compounding problems in the urban areas, right? You got chief among them is that they're dark blue. Okay. So th- there's no pushback occurring here. It's just this descent into leftist moon battery, right? Left wing policy failure after failure after failure. They just keep piling them on because there's no, there, there isn't anybody getting through the echo chamber there. Uncontrolled crime, roving. Uh, drug zombies and mental illness zombies and swarms of sanctuary recipient asylum scammers. They're all crowding out reasonable people and businesses. The normies who remain to take advantage of access to cultural events, such as they are, um, and and, a variety of restaurants, they're also subjected to a totalitarian social control system and two-tier justice system that punish them when they fight back against criminals. But no matter how desperate the situation gets, city councils can be counted on to double down on the woke policies and then double down again. Large San Francisco commercial businesses, I covered this a couple of weeks ago, hotels, malls, they're just walking away. 
They're just they're just walking away from the mortgage. Leaving the banks on the hook. Got a couple of uh, emails here, actually, from... Uh, let me read them before I uh, get back to the imploding cities piece. Uh, just because I don't want to move on before and, and, and miss the opportunity to... Uh, to circle back here. This is uh, from Dennis. He says, on the NC Innovation Plan, why do I get the sneaky suspicion that somewhere along the line, this NC Innovation Plan, there's going to be a windmill salesman lurking, uh, lurking in the shadows? That's <laughs> it's possible. Maybe a solar panel deal? Yeah. Uh, which is what Lance suggests, uh, my first instinct is to reject this idea. Uh, it reminds me too much of the deals like Solyndra, and with the direction that Bidenomics is taking us, we're going to need everything we have in that rainy day fund sooner rather than later. I smell a deep state Democrat money grab sweeping up a few naive Republicans. Uh, so that was what we talked about in the last hour, the NC Innovation proposal that's uh, in the legislature right now. Imploding cities, though. Um, and I look at cities in development like this, I, I look at it as uh, in cycles, right? Almost like it breathes, like cities grow and then they shrink and grow and shrink. Like people move to different neighborhoods, you get revitalization and, you know, and then decay. So it's, you're, you're constantly reinventing. So um, my fear is that all of the stuff that the, the, the groundwork that has been laid is going to lead to uh, a lot of real bad problems. And Athena Thorne, uh, I think, does a good job in, in, in bringing this into focus in this piece at pjmedia.com. Um, she says, conservatives, we conservatives can point and laugh at the plight of woke cities from the comfort and safety of our suburban and rural homes. But we may want to take a moment to consider a sobering issue. The effects of the imminent collapse of the commercial urban real estate market will ripple out across the financial sector and affect just about everybody in one way or another. Remember the mortgage-backed security crisis in 08? Even if you didn't default on your mortgage, even if you didn't own a house, the entire economy tipped into what they called right, the Great Recession, and everybody suffered. So this would be kind of like that, except the problem starts with a commercial real estate collapse. The article that I did a couple of weeks back um, came out of the Atlantic. It was called The Next Crisis Will Start With Empty Office Buildings, right? So the first step is that the demand dries up. People don't want the office space anymore because as Monica uh, uh, messages me, uh, quote, Ah, ha, 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 We are never going back to the office. There is no reason. Okay. Right. So, yes, she, that's, and there are a lot of people that do not want to go back. And businesses that don't want to have to pay for the office space. They don't need people to come back. Right. So that's the first problem is that there's the demand shrinks. Next, the loss of commercial tenants and landlords causes urban fiscal pain. Why? Taxes, property taxes, retail sales, right? Uh, public transit, like the fare money, like all of that stuff declines. And so you get these, these growing budget holes that then have to be plugged. How do you plug the budget holes? Well, you've got to cut spending. I'm kidding. No, you raise the taxes, <laughs> right? Uh, you know, I, I'm sure. Yeah, they'll 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 defund the police even more. So that yeah, so they will have to be cutting some services, cutting some spending. They're going to be raising taxes. Cities then are going to have you know to make these choices. 
either of which then drives out the remaining wealthy and productive residents and businesses. The cycle can kill a city. In the 1970s, uh, you saw municipalities that were starting to declare bankruptcy, right? And that's going to be a drain then on uh, federal resources because they're going to be asked to bail out the cities. And how about this? Pension funds, public and private pension funds, have traditionally kept their assets in stocks, bonds, and cash. However, in recent decades, they've been shifting towards so-called alternative investments, including commercial real estate and private equity. These investments now make up about a third of their portfolios, with real estate comprising about half of the assets for many pension funds. When you realize now that everybody's pensions are involved, you understand that not bailing out these banks and cities it was never going to be an option. She says they've got us over a barrel. <laughs> yeah, like a tr- maybe a trillion, maybe two, flowing out of uh, GovCo's coffers. This while we're still reeling from inflation, high interest rates, and the last crisis, you know, the great COVID overreaction rescue plan. So, yeah, uh, the shift in work styles probably was inevitable to some extent, right? With the technology, sure. But um, but that, that got accelerated with the COVID shutdowns. Work, school, shopping, it all went online, right? Um, and so now you've got all of this this cascade effect and i don't know when it starts i don't know how it starts but at some point i think it starts and once the once the the cascade begins it's just boom 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 all of the dominoes start falling right and then you add into that a criminal justice system that exists in a lot of these big cities that is uh being you know led at least from the prosecutor's office side um by these Soros-funded DAs. Oh, sorry. Was I not allowed to say George Soros? I'm not sure what the rule is anymore. Because he's handing the company off to his kid. So, anyway. But, the yeah, the, the these organizations that Soros funds, that then puts in these radical left-wing activist DAs, right? That And they, what, they come from the activist class, as well as they come from, like, city council seats and such. And their, quote, reforms in criminal justice make urban life almost unlivable for people. America's cities are going to continue to circle the drain here. And it's not just uh, it's not just the cities that are going to suffer. We're all going to get sucked down with them. And the people that run the cities, you know, they're they're going to get to keep their gigs. Not like all these Democrats in the cities are going to be like, oh, my gosh, we got to stop voting for Democrats. (laughs) That's not going to happen. Yeah. All right, up next, a, uh, a review of Sound of Freedom by a guy with a, I don't know, he may have, he may have a bit of a personal bias against the, uh, the child sex trafficking exposure. Uh, I don't know, I'll see what you think. Up next. Up next.